children may be dismissed with our volunteers in the back to Children's Church. For those of you who remain, I'll invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 1. We begin a new series today, and if you've ever heard me begin a new series, I almost inevitably begin a new series by saying, I hate doing introductory sermons because I always feel like I have to say everything. But here's the thing. The book of Hebrews, though we don't know who wrote it, it is most rightly characterized as the transcript of a sermon written down and sent out as a letter. And in his introduction, he says all the things that he comes back and says later. So I don't feel so bad. Here as we begin to introduce this topic on a devastating majesty that we find in the book of Hebrews, let me invite you to turn your attention to Hebrews chapter 1 as we look at verses 1 through 3. This is God's word. Long ago, and many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. This is God's word. Let's pray that he would teach us. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would turn our attention to the majesty of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, that we might see him more clearly, that we might love him more purely, that we might follow him more wholeheartedly. We ask this in his name. Amen. So what captivates you? What what captures your attention? What are the sort of things that you just can't turn away from? That you just love to dive into and, and study and enjoy? Maybe it's art or music. Maybe you love movies and love to just dive into the different ways to tell powerful stories. Or maybe you like likes and so you find ways to get more of those on all the social media platforms that you can find. Or maybe you love trucks and every time you see the the excavations out there, you just have to stop and look at all the cool equipment. Or if you hear a siren, you just love fire trucks or police cars or whatever. Growing up, I always wanted a toy police car with flashing lights. Ah, the battery technology was yet to come. But when I was in my 20s, I found one and told my dad to buy it for me for Christmas. And he did. Maybe you have a hobby and it just energizes you. I've told you before that there is this dish that my mother-in-law makes that I dream about. I wake up just thinking about this tuna steak with a balsamic reduction on noodles And I found some tuna the other day at Costco, and I I just spent the whole week watching YouTube videos, talking to my mother-in-law, getting all, making sure we had all the appropriate ingredients. And and I made it last night, and I ate way too much of it. It was glorious. I just, it captured my attention for the whole week. And if I smelled too much like garlic to you as a result, I don't care. (laughs) It was worth it. What energizes you? I mean, there's no shortage of things out there in the world to to capture our attention. Good, wonderful, awesome things. 
There are so many of those things, in fact, that you might be forgiven for finding spiritual things boring. Finding Jesus dull. Don't we often behave that way? I mean, we would never say that in polite company. I find the Son of God quite droll. But don't we live that way sometimes? Where Jesus feels far away and irrelevant and old and ancient and dull. And the thought of him doesn't energize us. We don't look for opportunities to to dig in and learn more. There are plenty of other topics on YouTube for us to investigate. The Lord of glory becomes boring to us. If you've ever felt that way, you're not alone. The original hearers of this sermon and the recipients of this letter that we call the book of Hebrews had a similar problem. There were so many other things that seemed more captivating and more interesting than Jesus. Jesus was great and awesome and wonderful. And they went to church and they knew the Bible. And, but, but what about angels? Like, wouldn't it be cool if like, they were here and, and we could write books about them? And, and maybe we could, you know, or, or, or the laws of Moses, they, they were just just enraptured with all the incredible things that happened in Moses' ministry. We don't see oceans parted that way anymore. We don't see these earth-shaking, nation-crippling plagues like they did in the past. There are these rituals, days, and practices that that gave the sense that that God had called them to something important and meaningful. And they found themselves in a place where all of these things, these forms and figures and signs from the Old Testament captivated them much more than the Lord Jesus Christ did. And so our author lifts up Jesus to them and to us is the one who has all glory and all majesty. Whose glory and majesty is so great, is so awesome, is so powerful, that it devastates everything that would try to take his place. And in this introduction, he gives us a clue as to why Jesus is so majestic, and we're going to look at it, and we find it in two ways. The majesty of the Son is great and awesome in his word and in his work. The majesty of the Son is great and awesome in his word and in his work. And so the first thing I want us to consider this morning is the majestic word of the Son of God. Jesus' word is the ultimate word. There is no word greater than him. There is no wisdom more profound than what he offers. There is no truth that goes deeper than what he declares. The word of the Lord Jesus Christ is the ultimate word. 
And this is important for us to wrestle with because I mean, if you're like me, you like to know things. You like to have some certainty. Nobody likes to walk into their college class and find out that that's when the pop quiz was that they weren't prepared for. Nobody likes to, to go into the office and find out that all the servers crashed and all of our important records are gone. Like, like we like to know things. Like, is there a backup? Can, do, do I get to drop my lowest quiz grade? Like we, we like to know things and have certainty, even from the youngest age. The four-year-old who, who asks the incessant why questions, or, or maybe the 40-year-old, why is the sky blue? Why is the grass green? Well, why are things like that? Why do, did that person say that? And why should I put these shoes on? And why do I need to do this? And why should I have to turn in my homework on time? Like we want to know what the reasons are. We want to have confidence and surety. So we try to navigate this life. Will it be worth it if I take this route? Can I have some confidence? The problem is, we don't always know what we really need to know. Like we, we, we ask a lot of questions. We investigate a lot of things. But are they the right things? Take the book of Hebrews, for instance. We have a lot of questions about it. Who wrote it? Was it Paul? Was it John? Was it Apollos? Was it somebody else that we don't know? When did he write it? To whom? There's this verse about those from Italy send their greetings. Is it because it was written from Italy or to Italy and there were people from there with the author? Where was it written? To whom? When? Why? For what purpose? We have all of these questions, and they're not bad questions. They're worth studying and investigating. But we can ask questions. Why, why, why? Like that four-year-old wondering why they need to lace up their shoes, that we never stop to listen to the thing that matters. Because you're going to the park. We can ask all sorts of questions about the book of Hebrews and never stop to listen. What does it Say to us, what does God communicate to us? What is it that he wants us to know? Because if you stop and listen, you find that God is not silent. He is a revealing God. He is a speaking God. He shows himself from the earliest days. He has not hidden himself from his people, but reveals himself and shares the truth about who he is. And the reason he reveals himself, the reason he is a God who speaks, is that he might draw us into fellowship with him. Even in the garden, after the fall of Adam and Eve into sin, God comes and visits and calls out and speaks. And he asks the questions. But he asks the questions in a way that draws them out of hiding closer and closer. God is a revealing God that he might draw us closer 
to himself. The author of Hebrews communicates this to us. He's always been this way. We, we see these parallels. God spoke at many times and in many ways. God spoke. He's always been a speaking God. The way he brought the universe into existence was with the word of his power. He speaks, and in so doing, he reveals to us the deepest truths about who he is, who we are, and what the universe is really like. He has sent his prophets. He has declared his word. He has given us his truth. But in these last days, God has spoken. There's a ring of completion to it. That the God who has been a God who reveals himself, who speaks, who speaks with power, who speaks with truth, who speaks with the purpose of drawing us in, has spoken in such a way that the word is the most ultimate word he could speak. And the word that he has spoken is revealed to us in his son. In the past, it says, God spoke to our fathers. And the word that he spoke to them is relevant to us because anytime God reveals himself, to the, the, how he does it, why he does it, the outcome of that is relevant to, to all who would want to know more about this glorious God. But now he's spoken not just to those far off, Distant in time and space, but he's spoken to us. And he's spoken with a word that reverberates, that that isn't just passed down, but that continues to reverberate, to reveal itself afresh and anew. With that final, ultimate word to us. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, in the past, God spoke to our fathers It says that in these last days, he's spoken to us. And when the scriptures speak of the last days, it's not a day yet to come. We think about the last days as like those final few days right before everything ends. But when the scriptures speak of the last days, it's talking about a new era, this last era, these days, this time, the time between when Christ ascended be seated to the right hand of God the Father in the time when he comes again to make all things new. God spoke in the past, but he has spoken in these last days, not through the prophets, but through his Son, not by angels, not by servants, but by the power of his only begotten Son. Now, today, he is revealing himself in Jesus And what's interesting about these parallels, God spoke, God has spoken to the fathers, to us, in the past, in the last days, through the prophets, by his son. When it says that he spoke many times and in various ways, there's no parallel to that. And if you study the book of Hebrews and and see how painstakingly the author has made these parallels, these multiple things hold together, it gives you pause when something doesn't hold together. There's no parallel to the many times in various ways because in these last days, there is nothing parallel. He has spoken to us fully, finally, and completely in his glorious and majestic Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And what we're to take from this is this reality. That there is no greater revelation of the nature, character, and reality of God than the Lord Jesus Christ. If you want to know what God is like, if you want to know what God wants, if you want to know how he might react in certain circumstances, if you want to to know the essence of God's character and nature, there is no greater revelation of that than in the Lord Jesus Christ, the majestic Son of God. We struggle to receive that. It's hard to really grapple with the gravity of that, that there is nowhere else you can go to have a more reliable, more vivid, more true revelation of God than in Jesus. But like the original recipients of this letter, we find other ways to find something that we think will give us more certainty. We lean in on our traditions, though. This is... This is the way we've always done it. And if we've always done it, it's always worked. This must be the best. This is what's good. And this is what's right. And this is what's true. And this is how we should be. Or we look for that inner peace. We, like if I could just feel it powerfully or, or, or more deeply. If, if my emotions and affections could just testify to the truth of it. If, I, if, it's just ex, if it could be exciting or wondrous or glorious in my inner being, then I'll know it's much more true or real. Or we look for a sign, or we look for more rules, or we look for something else that can give us some more certainty that we are okay with God and that God is okay with us and that we know everything that we need to know about him and and, and it's all good. And the author of Hebrews says none of those things matter compared to the Son. If you want to know what God is like, if you want to know what He thinks, if you want to know what He thinks about you, you can't find the answers to those any better place than in Jesus Christ Himself. And that's where the problem comes for us. Because it's so much easier to grapple with an idea. It's so much simpler to to have a list of of traditions or rules. It's so much easier to have a, a philosophy that we can muse about. But it is really, really hard to get to know a person so deeply so intimately that you know everything about them. I mean, find a couple that has been married for 50 years and ask them, has it been simple? Has it been easy finding out all the things? Has it been worth it to be known and known by someone else? That's what God, in speaking, is inviting us into. Not just the idea of what it means to be right with him, but to be right with him 
in Christ, to grow, to know, not an idea, not a principle, but a person, the majestic Son of God, and to listen to Him, and to hear what He has to say, and to follow where He calls us to go, because His Word is the ultimate Word. It's not just that. We find that his work is equally majestic. The work of the Lord Jesus Christ is the ultimate work. And this is good for us to wrestle with too, because we're not just the sort of people that like to know things and have certainty. We're also the sort of people that like to accomplish things. I remember, you know, in your younger days, and people are like, what's the ultimate job for you? Like, what's your dream job? And it's rare for somebody to say, I want a job where I just sit around and do nothing all the time. Like, I want to be an astronaut. I want to be a firefighter. I want, I, I want to be the president. I want to, like, inherently, like, we understand, like, there, there, is, there is something glorious about accomplishing things. Going to the moon, traveling to Mars. But when we start to really consider our work, if we're honest, we're always going to be plagued with the questions, is it enough? Am I really qualified? Are the things that I do, that I offer to God, sufficient? In our house in South Carolina, it was pristine from head to toe, well, until we moved in with little ones and all that kind of stuff. But but there was this one critical problem. The the shower had had some, some problems and we thought that they had fixed it and our inspector didn't catch that the way they fixed it was they cut out the bottom, the floor, the tiles, and they sort of laid a new uh, pan and laid the tiles there and it didn't really match up right and they didn't mix the concrete well. And so they just put like strips of plastic around the edges to keep water from getting too far in there. But after a while, you're standing in the shower and you realize like things are shifting around and maybe that's not good. This is a bad thing. And we start noticing like this is a problem. The water is going to start coming through the, the ground floor if we don't do something about this. So we got a bunch of people to come out and give us estimates. And one guy comes in and he's like, oh, yeah, I recognize this house. You know, I did some work in this shower before. And I'm like, well, you're not getting a call back. Like, I can't think of a guy less qualified to come fix the thing than the guy who caused the problem. Jesus is lifted up. Not as that sort of person, but as the one whose work alone is qualified. Like when when parents have a child that has to undergo surgery, they don't want just any surgeon. They want to find the best. Who's the guy that specializes in this for kids? We have in the Son the one who does the best work for everything. That work that he does is for us. The author of the book of Hebrews gives us seven things that Jesus does to show us that that he has fulfilled every requirement of holiness and majesty and glory. He tells us that, that he was appointed the heir of all things. Like servants and angels, they don't inherit Children inherit. 
The, the eternally begotten Son of God is the heir of God. Which is to say, everything that God has is now owned by Jesus. How is that possible? Because Jesus is God, but we'll get into that in another sermon. He's the heir of everything. And in fact, everything that is, everything that he could possess, wouldn't even exist if it hadn't been made through him. It's not just appointed the heir of all things, but it's he through whom everything in the world was created. This is how we know that the Son is eternal, because everything that was created was created through him. There was never a time when he was not. Everything that was created was created through him. And the only way that's possible is if he is not created, but eternal. And he is the radiance of the glory of God. And this is an incredible thing. He's not a reflection of the glory of God. So I've gotten older, I've gotten more attuned to reflection for various and sundry reasons, not related to the fact that I'm bald. And you can look at the, the reflection of the sun's glory in the moon. Nothing scary about it. But Jesus is not the reflection of God's glory. He is the radiance of it. He shines forth with it. It, it, the glory of God is so central to the essence of his being that he just shines with it and radiates the Shekinah glory of God to all who would behold it as if he was the very sun itself. And it says that he is the exact imprint of the nature of God. It's not just that he shines out with his glory, but he's the imprint of his nature. And we might think that this is like a copy. Like you have a stamp and you stick it in the ink and then you give an imprint. And that's not the sense of this word at all. It's not the sense of copy. It's the sense of, it's the exact thing. Do you want to know what God looks like? Do you want to know what God does? Do you want to know what God's priorities are? Do you want to know what his nature is like? What his character is like? Then look no further than the Son. He is the exact representation of God. They are identical. In fact, he upholds the universe by the word of his power. So mighty is he that all that was made would fall apart if it weren't for his sustaining work. And he made purification for sin. This this Lord of glory, this majestic son, didn't just heap praise and glory and honor upon himself and look down on all those around us, but he devoted his work to purify those who were unqualified to make it so that those who are weak and frail and sinful and wicked and rebellious could yet have the way made clear to enter into the very presence of God who reveals himself to them. On our own, we are disqualified, but Christ on the cross, when he bore the sins of his people, purified them that they might boldly respond to God's call and step into his presence where it tells us that Jesus is now seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. 
Jesus is now in that place where worship takes place. He is now fully and completely in that realm of majesty. This son rules now over all things because there is no name greater than his. There is no power greater than his. There is no majesty greater than his. There is no grace greater than his. And if you want access to the God who made you, there is no other access to that God other than through the majestic son because his work is the ultimate work. He is the only one qualified to purify the sinner and welcome him into the presence of God. We have a hard time wrestling with that, don't we? We always look for other things. I'll do my devotions more regularly now. We, we think of ourselves in terms of, oh, I can't believe that I did that. We talked about this in Sunday school. <laughs> like, like To just wrestle with that, that's not who I really am. To wrestle with that statement, truly and honestly, reveals something just terrible about us. And so we look for ways to avoid that to add to Christ's work, to to take on our own shoulders some portion of it so that we can say, God, look, I've, I've done my best. Isn't that good? And so the original readers and hearers of the book of Hebrews looked to the prophets, to the Old Testament laws, to the sacrificial system, to the temple system, not as pointers to something greater, but it ends of themselves, as if going through the motions of worship was sufficient to make everything okay, as if there was anything that they could do or offer. We like to think that there's something that we could just add, something we could just do, some ethic we could just follow. And we don't just do that with ourselves, we do that to others around us putting on them heavier burdens than we would even dare to put on ourselves, asking them to get their act together before they enter into the presence of the the holy sanctuary of Calvary Reformed. But what Hebrews invites us to isn't an ethic, isn't a list of rules, isn't a a bunch of things that we can do, a bunch of prayers that we can pray to soothe our consciences invites us to stand in awe of the Son who has done everything. To embrace our weakness, to own our wickedness, and to stand in awe of Jesus whose work is the ultimate work. What would you put in his place? What could possibly compare to the majesty of the Son in his word and in his work? Some new obedience, some new theological knowledge, some more deeply held feelings, 
a, a, a real sincerity this time. What would you add to the majesty of the Son that could possibly, possibly make him better? It's like taking a flashlight out into the bright sun. It doesn't do any good. He is all majesty and all glory. And anything that we would try to substitute into his place, his glory and his majesty will lay it waste and devastate it. But this is the message of Hebrews to us. This is what the book is going to come back to again and again and again and again. It's going to call us away from our temptation to just think about God in terms of principles and ideas. To stop thinking about God in terms of rules and rituals. And to engage with the person of God through his majestic son, the Lord Jesus Christ. To behold his majesty. To grow in our awe and our love and our worship of him. To have our idols and our own works so devastated and undone before him that he becomes everything to us. That he and his majesty is our everything. May God make that so for us. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, devastate our idols, our self-righteousness. Destroy our boredom in the Son and remind us of His glory. Help us to come and stand amazed before Him and all that He has done and how He is the fulfillment of all that you have revealed. He is the final word to us, for us. He is the final work on our behalf. Lord, we are so prone to rely on ourselves, to seek our own confidence and our own works and our own wisdom. Help us to lay all those things aside, to put those self-sufficient things to death. And to look to the Son, to behold his majesty, and stand amazed. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.